This is the Future of Cyber Risk podcast, brought to you by Team Cymru. I'm your host, David Monier, fellow at Team Cymru. Let's jump right into today's episode. Hey, everybody, and thanks for listening to another episode of the Future of Cyber Risk podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Stephen Prodenkis, Deputy CISO at Verily, an alphabet company focused on delivering precision health. Thanks for chatting us with us today, uh, Stephen. Thank you very much, David. Thank you for inviting me. Our pleasure. So why don't we get started? Tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, what your role there as Deputy CISO is. About myself, well, I was born in Greece. I have traveled uh, and worked extensively over the years doing work with companies such as DHL, uh, Netscape, Oracle, United Nations, and now I'm with Verily. Verily is Google's health science company. And as a deputy CISO, I concentrate my work on governance, risk, and compliance. As you can imagine, working with uh, 18-some applications in healthcare, we are subject to HIPAA, SOC2, and a lot of other regulations uh, and a lot of other customer issues that we have to address every day. Part of my work has pretty much been identifying strategies to, to address a growing demand capacity and so on, understanding what the risk is. And I think we have the opportunity to talk a lot about that. But at the same time, also anticipating what uh, partnerships we're going to have, what joint ventures we're going to have, because it's inevitable in our business that we cannot do anything without engaging to some sort of partnership with someone. Now, going back to the personal stuff, I live in Austin, beautiful Texas, and uh, have a couple of kids that are now grown, and one of them is in college. The other works for a financial firm out of uh, Dallas, and I have been a volunteer medic for quite some time, but these days, I'm joining the craze of pickleball. So that's that's my my personal story. Nice. I've seen those folks playing that uh, in a park nearby, so it's a pretty interesting looking game. So you've been a CISO for nearly a decade across, you know, varying industries, like you said. Tell us, you know, how have you seen the role of CISO evolve over that time? So I became a CISO in 2006 for the UN Development Program. And very much at the time, CISOs were technologists. They were dealing with perimeter controls, understanding vulnerabilities, and we were concerned about how can we avoid data losses and so on. After a little while, we saw a shift where we started becoming more compliance focused. So the emphasis, therefore, became uh, PCI, SOC, and all, all the various regulations and standards. Nowadays, we see yet another shift. We're becoming risk focused. Now, obviously, there are very different approaches to risk management and very different ways that risk and the metrics of risk aid decision making. So we'll talk a little bit about this, but We do see that we have now access to C-level executives. We see that we are being asked to present to the board and we are being asked to actually help determine IT strategy and so on. Now, I don't want you getting the wrong impression. Technical skills are still quite important, but we also see a lot of my peers taking a more business-oriented approach. And we see, therefore, CISOs becoming more strategists, and they're becoming more aware of a broader perspective, not just specific to the technologies that their company may be using. So more emphasis on applicability of technology, more emphasis on understanding risk. Obviously, the regulations are inevitable and less emphasis on hands-on technology knowledge these days. 
Okay. So you describe it as a shift towards considering risk and, and keeping risk as the driver, as opposed to, say, technology or policy or, or regulatory components, like you said. So how does the modern CISO, in particular, like you described, it's kind of like a transitionary period right now. How would you say that the modern CISO views uh, cyber risk management? I gave this some thought, and I'm going to try and sort of say the good, the bad, and the ugly. Maybe start with some misconceptions. So I do still see a problem of alignment between what security operations aim to do and what the business strategy is. So we keep implementing capabilities. We look at different frameworks, but we do have, and I can, I can clearly reflect to that myself, we do have a difficulty translating business requirements to how those reflect to our controls and, and so on. So we make decisions based on specific technical exposure but we do not necessarily see how that can impact the business. We look at tools, we count vulnerabilities, but those are not necessarily measures of business cyber risk. So this is the foundation of, I think, the problem and how we approach risk. Let's talk a little bit further in in detail on this. So when we look at risk and what is the acceptable level for our specific company, We determine that, but we determine it in security metrics, not necessarily in business metrics. So when we engage executives, business product managers, and we talk to them about risk, and we talk to them about the kind of money we need to spend or the controls that we need to implement, it is not clear what the impact to their business would be as a result of our inherent residual risk. And we do not have the same definitions about this. Let me give you an example. So when we look at, say, I mentioned before about partners. So when we mitigate our exposure to partner equipment that is connecting to our network, something that happens in my industry a lot. So we say to them that we can mitigate that at a certain cost, but that's going to require, obviously, additional management, additional technologies. And the result of the mitigation cannot easily be expressed in business terms. Is that going to mean more partnerships for them, easier integration? We just say, let's do that to enable partners, but we're not going beyond that to express that into something that the business can relate to. Another issue that we face is that we have a very difficult time accounting for all our inventory. So when I say asset inventory, so I'm referring to third-party cloud applications, and what all our business units are using. We don't actually have a good handle of that. As a result, our risk assessment is deterministic. It's like we assess what we know, but we cannot go beyond that and say, let's assess all the things that are truly there. And I do know firsthand how challenging it can be. As I said, in biotechnology business and health sciences, you cannot do anything unless you rely very heavily on joint ventures and partners. But at the end of the day, we are left without any ability to fully assess the risk that our organization is facing unless we have a very good handle of of our IT assets and a very up-to-date inventory. Now, we talked about what to measure. Now, let's talk about the expression of the measurement. In other words, the quantification of the risk. So in hard terms, the idea is that we put a lot of emphasis on meeting framework requirements, and we see 
compliance with framework is equivalent to security. And that's a big fallacy. So we therefore spend a lot of time on checking boxes and say we met SOC 2, we are HIPAA compliant, we met the security rule. And even though we may convey that as a big success to the board, that doesn't necessarily make us secure. So the way we're thinking about it is, I'll introduce this notion of exploitability. So is a threat truly applicable to me? History, especially going back to some major hacks that I was part of at HBO, most of the times, something that is exploited is not the latest and fanciest. It is something that is very rudimentary, an open port, a truly old piece of software that hasn't been patched. So therefore, when we start thinking of the exploitability of that and the result of the exploitability, so in other words, how easily can somebody take advantage of it? And once they take advantage, what actually is going to be accessible to them or what can they take? That is how we start thinking. Now, why is that important? Is because of the effort and expense that we're going to make to address it. Another example, in biotech, we care a lot of our intellectual property, our infrastructure and how we protect it against adversaries that can actually steal our intellectual property is the most important thing. And that's where I'm going to put my money and my effort. At the same token, we don't care. Not, I don't want to give anybody the wrong idea, but we don't care as much for applications that we say will steal cash. Now, in the financial industry, that's probably exactly the opposite. So we have to look at exploitability and create a risk metric along those lines. We love security assessments and pen tests. They are very useful, but they're as good as the time that you actually make them. So we're 100% cloud. So this whole notion of perimeter doesn't apply to us. Our perimeter is fluid. As a result, that's even worse because we have an extensive remote workforce and we have a very big partner ecosystem. So therefore, a stellar audit, as much as we love it, and a clean pen test is as good as the time that they, they run it, we celebrate it, and then moving on. Any vulnerability can just be introduced a second after the, the clean pen test was uh, run. So I know I was long-winded, and I apologize. So going back to your question, we see risk management as a matter of meeting compliance checklists or performing some sort of threat assessment, which we then manage. It is useful, but it is not the way that we necessarily want to be running our business. We need to combine that with an understanding of current threats and vulnerabilities and their exploitability to our specific environment. And then we make decisions from there. Well, that, uh, though you may want to call it long-winded, I would say that uh, was a very, very detailed and thought out answer. So thank you very much for that. So you touched on something there that I, just to add a little, we also have seen that that determination of what actually are the assets is a huge challenge. And not just because of the work from home, but because also massive rise in popularity for things like, you know, freemium modeled services or a product-led growth, you know, business models, you not necessarily, you can't even necessarily use who you're making payments to, to indicate who you've partnered with. You could very well have people who are earlier in the stage to where they don't yet need to pay for uh, using some third party. And we have seen a lot of that. Uh, and it gets very, very tricky to assess that. So one of the approaches that we've tried to do is take more like of a passive approach to it 
so that uh, when people are trying to figure out what is their attack surface or what is their supply chain, because you could think of it as that at the point you're, you know, including partners like that, we get down to the point of, did you know your network is talking to this other network? And then let's find out why. And typically, it's not because of a compromise. Typically, it's because some employee is like, oh, yeah, that's we use that for accounting or we use that for, and it's some typically some capability that nobody realized was going on. And at the decision maker level, but at the execution layer, you know, where the boot, you know, where the rubber meets the road, if you will, those folks were reliant on and fully aware. Uh, but that uh, notion never made it up to the decision maker. So like you said, how do you account, you know, for something that you don't know? Uh, so we've seen that a lot. So it's in some ways, it's assuring to know that it's not a unique problem. No, it is not. And one of the biggest concerns is that when we create a product that relies on, say, a sensor or some embedded device that is provided by a partner, but that device in its own right relies on firmware or a third-party library that's provided by somebody else, and the chain is endless. So that is the kind of concern that we have, because in many cases, we do not have the kind of insight to the device or the firmware that we would like in order to justify some sort of analysis or, or assessment of the security posture. We treat them as black boxes. And then we go back to the notion that we assume that is broken and we go from there because there is no, no other technique that we have found anyway that will facilitate the kind of control building and kind of mitigation that will get us into a safe result. So we have to assume that it is compromised and, and then we, we build the metrics and the alerts and monitoring around. Yeah, I can only imagine that's got to be an endless hurdle in healthcare in particular, because there are so many uh, device inventors uh, out the world that you really have no idea if security was even a component in their designs. So like I said, I, I assume you just are all a hostile device. So what would you say that most CISOs get wrong about cyber risk management? We do it all right. <laughs> but joking <laughs> apart, okay, I mentioned it before, and, and I think there is a sort of becoming a theme of what I've been saying here today. Uh, the equating compliance or meeting compliance with security is a mistake. And I'm not trying to say that compliance is not necessary. Absolutely, it is. However, then, as I said, I work in healthcare, so compliance is absolutely critical, but it cannot be the end all be all. So, therefore, taking a compliance approach to security is something we on occasion take wrong. And I want to sort of give you an example on that. If you look at the HIPAA security rule, the HIPAA security rule does not make encryption of data explicit requirement. It is something that they refer to as an addressable implementation specification. So in other words, as a result of the risk assessment that you do to your environment, you may decide, and that's what the rule says, you may decide to actually implement data encryption. Now, I can tell you that if I was to go by compliance and I would skip that, I would actually open up all my PHI into a tremendous kind of liability. So therefore, I don't follow the compliance. I meet the compliance and to some degree I extend it, but I don't build security based on compliance requirements. So the other thing is following a framework blindly. Frameworks are very useful. And I want to use yet another example Many a time I hear colleagues saying, oh, we are secure, we're following defense in depth. And that has given me uh, many a time the opportunity to reflect and uh, led into some quite unpopular moments when I said, I'm sorry, it doesn't make sense. At least in my environment, I cannot talk about anybody else. My perimeter is quite fluid. So 
as we visualize defense in depth and as we consider that each layer is becoming bigger and the threats to each layer becoming more undeterminable, protecting it following a framework such as defense in depth is becoming very expensive. So the other interesting thing is that I think we all agree that one of our biggest threats today is the human factor. So defense in depth and the human factor do not actually come together very well. Defense in depth draws a line of demarcation, right, at a physical device, a router, a firewall, something, and does not take in consideration the human factor. So, so here's what we do. We sort of, if we follow a framework such as that blindly, we're going to essentially say to ourselves, so we're sitting ducks ready to be attacked, and we would allow most attacks to hit our gates. And if we continue to do that, eventually we're going to be hacked or we're going to be DDoSed or whatever. So the what therefore we take wrong is that and the biggest challenge to how we manage security and how we manage risk is that we have to combine a framework that makes sense to us. So in our case, we take uh, controls from various frameworks. In certain cases, we're obviously... ISO 27001, we, but we may take stuff from NIST, we may take stuff from SIS20 that makes sense to us. We assess them and we establish a baseline. So we say everything has to meet that baseline. So therefore, we do follow the frameworks, but we do not follow frameworks blindly. And we also recognize that there is an effort to meet regulatory, but security will actually have additional requirements, controls, nuances that are not necessarily demanded or always recommended by a regulation. So that's that's what I think sometimes we take wrong and that's what sometimes we should consider. Yeah, I have seen a lot of that. In particular, like you said, the, the idea that once the boxes are checked, kind of we've met the policy necessities, if you will, there is often that idea that like, well, why would we do anything more because what we've done is good enough? Because it's very tricky, I think, for decision makers that don't have kind of those technical backgrounds for them to see the value in those security stages. For okay. So that kind of leads into my next question. And that's, you know, as an executive, what do you think makes for, you know, an effective cyber risk management? And how do you measure that management's effectiveness? So... Measurement is is difficult because going back to some of your previous questions, we have to make sure that metrics are developed to be communicated to a variety of audiences and that they are uh, irrefutable. So we'll talk about that. So it's interesting. So I just said in your previous question, I don't follow a framework blindly. Mm -hmm. So running the risk to contradict myself, I'll say that I like the zero trust framework. And I like the zero trust framework because... A traditional, like we said, security approach concentrates on building protections around a secure perimeter. And then, therefore, we keep threats outside the perimeter. But this model essentially leads into a significant underinvestment into what's going on inside your perimeter, internal applications, infrastructure, and so on. So we, therefore, reject the perimeter model, and we say that it makes sense for us to embrace uh, zero trust. Now, zero trust to us means that we, instead of trusting data and transactions, after they've cleared our perimeter, we just verify that they can either cross our perimeter or they can come outside and inside our system. So we we say we utilize automation, we constantly verify, and um, we try to 
secure our interfaces and the extensions of our network. So that's one approach that we take. The next thing is, let's talk about risk. So we become risk, let's say, risk-informed. That's the, the word I would use. So what that means is that we recognize that some threats are unavoidable. And we say that we will go and build controls and effort and resources against those threats that are clearly exploitable. And once exploited, they would lead into either intellectual property data or other pieces that we care about, and they cannot be easily replicated or easily managed. So the last thing is that we need to make the right decisions around sourcing. So building a capability that collects logs, ingests intelligence, uh, prioritizes triages to the typical company, that's quite expensive. So we outsource the pieces that it makes more sense for us to outsource because it's more economical and more scalable as our business scales. Case in point, as I said, a seam with all the triaging and management around it. So this is the approach that we take. Now, in terms of metrics, we do have a lot of them, but the things that I'd like to mention that I find material to a security professional and given some sort of cultural training to executives and business is obviously the event volume. Event volume is important because you say, well, how many how many threats we have, how many attempts we have? That's important to know. The second thing, though, is that there is a dimension of that to say, where are they coming from? So it's one thing to know there is one perpetrator that is attacking us with a lot of you know stealthy resources. And another thing to know that we're being attacked by 10,000 ones it's just a, it's a different model of how to deal with it. Now, the other thing that is important to us, and it's a little bit controversial, is what I call, Google actually calls, pipeline latency. So what that means is that how long does it take us before we confirm something? Big parentheses. I, whenever I've been asked to review a contract, you know, vendors or customers, they say they want to be notified within five minutes of an incident. I <laughs> say, draw this out. Uh, confirmed incident, and then we obviously negotiate from there. But it's important for us as a metric to know how quickly we can go from a suspected to a confirmed incident. And, uh, you know, anecdotally, Google strives to be five minutes. At verily, we're working on that. <laughs> so, and the last thing is that, that the time to triage. So in other words, you may find a theme here, right? The theme is obviously around threats. And the theme is about our capability to take action. So we're more about recognizing that threats will come. We do have enough metrics and how capable are we to deal with them? Now, in addition to that, obviously, we do have other metrics like the mean patching time for endpoints and others. But I'm putting less emphasis on that because a lot of our endpoints being 100% cloud are ephemeral. So we do not measure things that essentially may demonstrate that something was not in compliance but doesn't exist anymore because of the time that it was just the nature of ephemeral devices and uh, software-based uh, network. So this is it. This is what I will be looking at to implement. And as I said, operationally oriented and threat management oriented, that is something that I can easily convey to others, and I think they will understand with a little bit of, like I said, cultural training. Okay. 
So, Stephen, I have to tell you, you are incredibly talented at articulating these concepts. I have to ask you, is there any methodology that you have uh, learned uh, in your way of explaining these things? Because I would imagine at a board level, you really have to kind of avoid, you know, technically nuanced stuff, but you still have to explain that. Uh, and I notice as you're explaining these things, you have like supportive examples and you seem to follow a, a specific tempo. Is that coincidence or, or uh, is, do you have any advice for, for your peers out there to learn those, uh, that skill? Maybe it has to do a little bit about having uh, a lot of Greek mythology over my young years <laughs> in Greek elementary school. I really don't know, but I do have a measure in my head. Essentially, I'm not suggesting that the concepts and the technologies that we deal with every day are simple. They're not. Trying to explain machine language and artificial intelligence to everyone is rather complicated, but it is absolutely essential for us because we are negotiators and we are communicators to be able to convey subjects in applicable terms. So talk to a financier in financial terms, even though we are not financiers ourselves, but we have to make an effort. And if you cannot understand what you're saying yourself, then either you need to make a, a point to study it a little better, or you need to make an effort in any way to utilize simple terms. Otherwise, I think talks volumes to your ability to understand the concept or also your ability to convey its applicability to your business. So, as I said, we use very complex technologies every day. And the idea is that we reach a point with even our known technologies that we're dealing with very ambiguous subjects. What we do sometimes has not been done before. So at that point, we need to be able to explain in plain terms of what we're trying to achieve. And then depending on your audience, you either go much, much deeper and the technical conversation evolves, or you stay at a level that everybody can communicate because you have different representations and different, you know, different kinds of experience and people in the room. So I hope I answered your question. Yeah, absolutely. So you are a very effective uh, explainer of these topics. So, so thank you for that. So as a CISO, you know, you have the benefit of seeing uh, into the future to some degree, you know, what uh, will potentially become mainstream, you know, in say three to five years. What kind of security tools and technologies are you paying attention to now that you are kind of excited about or that, you know, you're interested to see what their impact to the future will be? So we do see the implementation of a lot of microservices, APIs, cloud native software, but we have not seen, at least not in a broad sense, a lot of security applications to manage them and monitor them. So monitoring microservice activity, monitoring APIs, I think is something we're going to see. And I'm aware of a lot of companies that are looking at that, but, and I don't want to make a blanket statement that they're not there yet, but at least this is an area that I see much more improvement uh, of technologies. The other thing that I see is that there is this desire from our end where we believe that continuous monitoring is absolutely essential to think of the, again, buzzword is the gamification of security validations. So in other words, we want to see how we can use artificial intelligence and security tools together so that when we develop 
a capability to test and validate something. We are not deterministic because I only know to validate what I know to validate. It is very difficult to establish as a human all the possible permutations, especially when an application defaults into an operating environment. So in other words, the application is built to operate in a certain way out of the default setting. But when the application finds that, oh, I have more users, a spike, okay, or I now need to replicate myself because many of my users are coming from a certain region, so I'm going to put more resources there. We need the validation, the security, the dynamic code analysis, or the, the operating monitoring to be able to adhere to something like that and to be able to do it as early as possible, fitting into the application development space. Well, I would be amiss to, to not say remote work, right? Remote work and remote access is important. We obviously have an extensive remote workforce ourselves. I mean, I am a remote worker myself. We do not use VPNs. We consider that quite antiquated, actually. But that said, we do recognize that while remote access is quite advanced, remote management of devices and other mostly on-prem equipment is not there yet. So I think we're going to see something happening there. Well, I work for Google. I have to say something about artificial intelligence and machine language. Okay, even though I'm far from an expert in those areas, but it wouldn't be really interesting to realize that we have not seen many attacks happening from artificial intelligence itself. And it is quite possible that we will see a hacking campaign that is orchestrated by an artificial intelligence engine. So the result, I mean, the, in the most rudimentary way, that would be an artificial intelligence engine sending a bunch of emails out, phishing emails. But then it analyzes the results and then continues to exploit. And I'm not sure, other than obviously dealing with the end result, how we should be able to manage and mitigate the engine itself. So I think we're going to see some new tools that will start creating some attention to the originating capability of these potential attacks, those being artificial intelligence. So 5G, okay, so we have IoTs, wearables, 5G. For a while, because we are in the sensor embedded device business, we're obviously worried about IoT-specific defects and monitoring. And to sort of draw a parallel that to a different area, it's not exactly IoT, there's a lot of critical devices that are managed by security methods such as SCADA that are the same kind of vulnerable, think of trains, um, (laughs) nuclear plants, all kinds that are vulnerable in the same way, not in the same scale, mind you, as a wearable device, but it is the same sort of perspective. Now, you also opened up my appetite before. So I hadn't thought of that, but it wouldn't be amazing to be able to visualize your supply chain and see that I'm relying to these, say, vendors who rely to these vendors and so on, and being able to visualize that chain and say that part of that chain has been compromised, allowing you to do something different and say, for instance, We are licensing a device, the device requires firmware, that firmware requires this validation, a third-party library going deeply. That third-party library is known now to be defective. We need to find something different. 
So that is thanks to you. I thought of this now. It would be an amazing opportunity to secure our supply chain if we have this kind of visualization and knowledge. And uh, I'll make a comment on that. I think a lot of your audience will probably agree. What we went through to identify our exposure to log4j last January. I mean, we knew <laughs> we knew very quickly we did not have any exposure directly, but indirectly, it took weeks for us to be able to pull all our suppliers and being able to determine. So that plays to, to this kind of issue and this kind of visibility. That would be amazing to have one of these days. Yeah, we take that approach on our pure signal platform. That's one of the kind of cornerstone concepts that we have for our stuff is as far as identifying where your assets are and what your supply chain is. We get down to even like who the ISP is to some of the services you're talking to. If that ISP has like, you know, a poor reputation, let's say they're known for hosting malicious stuff. It's good to know that, or it's good to know that you've outsourced your email services to someone or your DNS services and so on. A lot of time that just gets overlooked. You know, you touched briefly on what I consider, and this is kind of my blue team background, but the dilemma of that scalability monitoring scenario where you have this dynamic scaling uh, that occurs you know, one of the biggest drivers for burnout in the operator layer is this unactionable alert, right? So uh, we have these people who are triaging and they are just, it's a fire hose of stuff they can do nothing about. And it's, we end up having this like operator layer where there are people really determining, oh, this isn't for us or this isn't important. And when you have this kind of dynamic, you know, geographic dispersal and growth, you know, like you said, suddenly maybe a service becomes in demand in some part of the world, microservices are spun up automatically. Let's say even if you're aware of them, you would have to know down to the second, really, what if it was your thing at that address and port at that time and things like that in order for you to even know if your sensors were accurate. And so like the kind of the timing and, and the what's called coordinate required, the data coordination required almost at an atomic level, you know, just I look at that and I think that's a disaster. Like as far as the monitoring, you know, component of it, it's like a disaster waiting to happen. So I would really have to agree with you if that doesn't get solved, there will, I, I think we'll have big repercussions for that in, in particular in that reaction, because people will, will go back to the days of it's a constant flood of stuff. Oh, uh, sure, there was something bad there, but it wasn't us. It was who was the tenant right before us, or it was the tenant right after when our instance was there, uh, this kind of model. So from a practical perspective, you need to maintain activity logs for a significant period of time. So because that will allow you to run some correlation between events that you see now and some of their characteristics to past events and try and find some connection. So IP addresses change, and there's very difficult to say, oh, this is coming from the same uh, end. I mean, that would be a very sort of rudimentary thing. So I'm not even talking about this, but what I am talking about is a compromised endpoint that continues to appear to have some behavior that does not fit everything else. Pinging some mothership once in a while, sending little amounts of data that do not belong to a known interface and things of that nature. So, but in order for you to do that, there are two things that are needed. Sufficient amount of data for you to be able to find patterns or at least some correlation. 
And the second part is some degree of automation. So unfortunately, the second is not there yet. Because what we are dealing with is essentially these days with a lot of tools, we have a lot of information, but we're doing direct searches to see, do I see this specific pattern? But what we do not do is to see, do I see a series of connections between information that I have collected over time that suggests something more sinister? Because that is very difficult to do. I believe that more automation is coming and obviously the ability to build, use again AI to actually find potential leaks or other such issues is there. The last thing that I want to say is that it comes down to a few simpler rules. The ability to actually not introduce third-party software that is unauthorized, the very close look into, do you really want to allow BYOD? And again, it's not a binary thing. You could allow BYOD for certain things like email, but do you really need to allow BYOD all the way into your network, into your sensitive apps? So these are the kinds of decisions that, as tough as they may be in certain environments and because of culture and legacy and so on, you may end up being in a better way to address potential attacks because you have such an environment that is as uniform as possible and as easy to understand and a little bit more predictable. So for security leaders, you know, that are looking to uh, establish and, you know, grow a high-performing security team, what skills do you think are most important for them to be looking for today? In the past, we were looking for the best firewall guru or the guy who was a developer and wanted to do something else and wanted to be an application security guy or somebody who knew identity management. And I think that is now becoming a thing of the past because we recognize that these things can be taught. So we have moved on to more, we're looking for people who can be articulate, who can very well work with others. They're analytical thinkers. They can understand risk and being able to take calculated risks. In other words, innovate, but at the same time, being security conscious. And most importantly, someone that can step outside the prescribed process and do things in a different way, more efficient way. So as I mentioned to you before, I had the good luck to be part of a major hack at HBO from a foreign government. Now, there's so much I can say about this sometime. Someday down the line, maybe we'll write a book about it, but not now. <laughs> so it was, a, it was a foreign government. And it was something that actually kept us in the office, pretty much sleeping at our desk for about two months. But it came down to, we saw a certain behavior. So we sat around the, the table one night and we said, we have locked everybody out. So we don't have remote apps. We locked it. We do not allow any interfaces. We are essentially closed. But the comment the guy made revealed that he's listening to our email. How can that be possible? And we followed the Sherlockian approach. That is, if you eliminate what is probable, what is left is what happened. And we found that our MFA was compromised by essentially going through all the possibilities, as many of them as crazy, like somebody stole a computer. I mean, crazy stuff that we knew, but we had to eliminate everything. So what that proved is that we were not debating about coding nuances, but it proved two things. First, you have to know your network. You have to really know what you got in order for you to be effective. And that comes with time. But the second thing is to be truly 
capable to analytically evaluate possibilities and then assign threats to them and see what would have worked. And, and as I said, I'll leave that firsthand. Now, having said all that, there are some technical skills that we still would like to have. And the people that I work with and I try to hire these days, we need somebody that can script. Let me use all Python and so on. Understanding the cloud, you don't need to be an expert. You need to no, don't need to be able to write code, but you need to be able to get to your data. You need to be able to mine some basic information. You also need to understand containers. They are so prevalent these days, and they're not the same as what we have. Is there a different way of deploying applications? So you need to understand containers. You need to also understand forensics. It's a bit of an art, but you need to at least understand collecting data, discovery and basic analysis. You need to be able to run a pen test. Again, it's an art more than a science, but you need to be able as a security professional to run a basic, even unauthenticated penetration test to see is your perimeter sound. And then general data science, you need to be able to understand patterns, taxonomy. So when people talk to you, you can communicate in an effective way. These are the basic skills, but going back, Software skills, much more important these days than technical skills. I absolutely agree with you on that. That's uh, been one of my biggest observations. Uh, I'm an academic, uh, so I've very much relied on the soft skills very clear. So, and I've always uh, absolutely uh, agree with you there. So, Stephen, unfortunately, that's all the time we have uh, to cover stuff today. But before we go, for the listeners out there who might want to follow you, uh, see you know what you're chatting about, what you're working on, stuff like that, where can they go to follow you? Please email away. Espredakis <laughs> at google.com. I'd love to. Uh, I'm also on LinkedIn, and you can reach out. I'd love to, to talk, to be of help with the little things I know, or to debate any ideas. And also... I only express my ideas. And I said in the beginning, I do not know everything. And I, I just have an opinion. And I'm open to, to debate and make corrections. So I hope it was useful. And um, I gave you some examples from my working life. And uh, I'd love to hear back. And I hope, again, that somebody will find some of the examples applicable to what they do. I'm certain that they will. Everything you had to say was very, very enlightening. Uh, and I have to say, it's not often someone comes along and challenges the internet to debate. So... Hats off to you for that. So thanks again. Thank you for your time. And we hope you have a good day. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Future of Cyber Risk podcast brought to you by Team Cymru. For the latest episodes, please visit team-cymru.com or search Future of Cyber Risk on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks, and we'll catch you on the next episode.